Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, I'll be talking fitness trends and boutique gym workouts with trainer Owen McGregor. Emer Daly will bring us the latest in health and wellness news. And why is so little known about endometriosis? So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was a good week, a good mix of work, time off. I got a lot in this week but with plenty of room to breathe. I like when a week goes that way. And we were out for dinner with friends this week and one of them said, what is it with all this wellness? I mean, I don't think that word was used before 2012 and now it's everywhere. And it turns out it was actually the 1650s when it first appeared in the Oxford Dictionary as an opposite to illness. But I do take the point. It has grown legs since then and become a billion euro empire. Billions, in fact, a marketing ploy. But I still feel its roots are the same. I often look at it as in health being your bodily functions in working order and wellness or well-being as everything on top. I mean, we're emotional beings after all, and we need more than just a functioning body. Or is it that that's well-being and the wellness industry is something that you can buy into. I mean, there isn't much that hasn't been monetized these days. Health itself, private consultants and practitioners, insurance, wearable tech. People are making money out of health and just about whatever they can. It's not just wellness. What I don't like about the wellness industry is the message that's given out that you're broken in need of fixing and here is the antidote. And often it's not as simple as that. And it's not a very motivating place to start from criticism. It's not very wellness. I do think we need to start moving from a health versus wellness to a truly integrated health and wellness system. They complement each other rather than work against each other. Many wellness practices have just as much science and evidence based behind them as medicine. In Japan, for example, they prescribe time in nature following major surgery or illness and even have centres for convalescence beside trees and water. We often need more than just to be patched up and sent on our way. We need wellness to be truly well. I'd love to get your thoughts. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Emer Daly joins me with the latest in health and wellness news and it's our first of 2024, Emer. How has that happened? It is, but I'm delighted to be here. How has your year been going so far? It's been going good. I have just taught my first yoga class of the year today to a small group of friends, but it's a win and I'm so happy with it. So you're doing yoga training? Yes. What does that mean? Because I often see people say I have 200 hours. Is that how you qualify? Yeah. So the number of hours would say how much experience you have, how much training you have, but the base time would be 200 hours teacher training. And what type of yoga are you learning? All sorts of yoga. Like I really didn't know how much yoga has opened up like all different types of movement for me. Like you're learning about like pregnancy yoga, basic yin yoga, just a nice morning gentle flow. Like I've learned so much and I actually think that like if anyone's ever like, what will I do after school or what should I be doing with my life? Do a yoga course. It will just honestly open up so much for you. Because I've heard from a few people who've done it. It becomes a bit of a personal journey. I know this sounds like so X factorish, but you learn a lot about yourself because you're spending this time on your mat trying something new and going from your head to your body. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like, I'm surprised at the amount of people that are there to not be teachers and they're just there to do 
a yoga teacher practice for themselves to get more in touch with their body and just to love themselves a little bit more, as cringy and cliche as that might sound, but that is just giving yourself that appreciation. And I know that you and your sister are doing it together. She's a, a, a PT and you're both quite into your fitness. We and are, yes. I think people often think yoga isn't enough of a workout. What would you say to that? I mean, I can see why people would think that, but definitely myself and Eve took on yoga to try to do something to slow down and we can find ourselves leaning more into the, maybe the hot yoga classes or the higher intensity ones. And we're like, no, like we need to slow down, bring ourselves to like a slower pace. Like that's why we started this. And it's allowing us to do that and kind of just give the high intensity to those hit workouts that we do go to. And then when we come to our mat, we're like, this is when we slow down. But you can also bring it up a notch if you want to. Right, I want in to the next class, please. Put me down for sure. I started the show talking about a dinner I went to where somebody at the table was like, what is all this wellness stuff? Uh, What's your take on the whole health versus wellness debate? I think it's definitely like a question that a lot of people are asking themselves. I mean, every time you go on your phone, something falls under the category of wellness and we're bombarded by what it is. But it's a huge industry right now. And I do think health and well-being complement each other a lot of the time. Although I think like like the wellness industry has opened up so much more when it comes to health. Like maybe we wouldn't have seen so much in female health and research there when it comes to maybe endometriosis or menopause. Like maybe the wellness industry, I think personally, has opened up those conversations for us and allowed them be people to celebrate them and be ambassadors and they're all complementing each other. And we've even heard on News Talk before Professor Luke O'Neill say, um, you know, nurturing relationships in our life, they can also make us happier, but they also bring down like lowering our cholesterol levels. And that is, to me, a prime example of health and wellness, like working alongside each other. And the fact that you're listening to News Talk. I mean, you're scoring on all levels, Emer. Let's get into your health and wellness stories then. And we're going to start with the Workplace Wellbeing Index. Yeah, so Leia Healthcare have conducted an amazing body of research. They sent out a survey to 1,000 employees, 200 HR leaders to get insights into what is health and well-being in the workplace? How can we make things better for people? And they actually conducted it during COVID and it's gone on for the last few years. But it was during that time of like the transition into, you know, hybrid working, working from home. What is this? What do people want? But it's so amazing to see the trends because... HR leaders can just go from there and say this is what people are experiencing in the workplace and the top ones that have come out this year have been acute anxiety and the rising levels of anxiety. So it's actually fallen since 2020 but 84% of people still feel anxious and one in three people feel anxious all of the time. So that was still coming out as one of kind of the top areas for people and the second one there was being the rising cost of living which is their anxiety is being fueled by the rising cost of living. So employers can take these trends and see them and say, well, what do I need to do in the workplace to help these employees? And we've had experts like Dr. Emelina Ellis in the report saying that HR leaders can tackle this by having an EAP service available to them or making sure that they're okay to take breaks or annual leave or sick days and not kind of make a culture where that's not okay. So just making like an open, inclusive environment as well. So the report is absolutely amazing. Expert advice is in there and the trends just allow people see what's going on. And the workplace is really changing, isn't it? I mean, workplace well-being is huge now and you have employee assistance programs that you mentioned, um, 
mental health first aiders, just people placed within the organisation who can really keep an eye on people. It's not just about what results you're getting or how productive you're being. It's how are you feeling? Because in the long term, that makes you a better employee. Exactly. I think it's so nice to actually see that employers want to give more to their employees because we are in this weird transition stage, I think, where a lot of people might be, they might find a passion in COVID that they want to fuel themselves and they're saying, should I just go and leave the nine to five job? But actually, all they want to do is just be find a purpose somewhere. And it can come from the workplace and working in that nine to five job. Like that's amazing to be able to do and to know that someone's there to look after you as well. Yeah, definitely. As a freelancer, I absolutely concur. Um, you are no have another story here, um, and it's interesting because we have a personal trainer coming in. Um, and if somebody is struggling to build an exercise habit into the new year, you have a little bit of advice for them because now is sort of traditionally the time that all the plans that people maybe had with the turn of the year may be falling to the wayside. But all is not lost. No, all is not lost, and I think it's another time to just remind ourselves that like. It's okay to not have met your goals. I do think that goals were kind of, or New Year's resolutions were a bit thrown out the window in January, which I'm delighted to see. But if you did set yourself some expectations and you're not meeting them, it's okay. Let's try and not give ourselves that like self-criticism because that's doing us no good. But kind of the top things that we're seeing are stopping people from meeting their fitness goals. And I'm sure the personal trainer that you'll have will compliment these as people saying they don't have enough time in their diary. Um, And that's, one that's just seen across everybody, you know, we're, we're in this world now where we're constantly on, we're, we're demanding, our emails are following us everywhere. But actually just doing a simple thing like the night before looking at your schedule, what do I have coming up? Can I fit in like a phone call while I'm going for a walk or just actually taking a hard look at your schedule and saying, what can I change up here a little bit? Kind of such a huge impact. Um, so again, just not giving yourself a hard time, I think would really benefit. And if we try and take control of our schedule rather than letting our schedule take control of us, because as you say, sometimes when you really look, you do see pockets of time. And if you're interested in only starting small, often we're thinking, I can't run for an hour or I can't do that gym class. But could you do 10 minutes in your sitting room? Could you take that phone call on a walk, as you say? Could you cycle somewhere? Could you take the stairs? It's those little things that actually all add up in the end. Absolutely. Like you need 150 minutes of active physical activity per week. And when you break that down, like it's it's really about a half an hour or so like each day. You could get that in like walking to the kids to the school or maybe walking to get that oatmeal cappuccino, something like that. Just making it a bit of a fun for yourself and just adding movement in in ways that works for you. Uh, what about these glimmer trends on TikTok? What's all that about? Yeah, I love a good trend on TikTok. Um, this was a really nice one. Glimmer trends are people are just taking to social media to show lovely moments in their day, um, which glimmers are the opposite of triggers. They are moments of peace, joy, happiness, love. Um, and they're examples like smelling that first coffee in the morning or hearing the birds chirping kind of when the sun's going down in the evening and people are just taking to TikTok and saying these are their glimmers for the day and I guess it's just another way of showing gratitude and one of the nicer trends on social media. I absolutely love that and there's huge science behind gratitude and really being conscious of certain small moments in our day and the more we begin to note them, the more we start to look out for them because that's how our brain works. And that can do all kinds of things like reduce our blood pressure, reduce our anxiety levels, give us a more positive outlook. So this is beyond a a trend. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's just another nice way of bringing in, as you said, gratitude. The more we're practicing it, the more we're noticing it and the more it's just having a better effect on us. Well, where can people find you on Instagram? People can find me on Instagram at Daily Wellbeing. I host many hikes, I have a podcast. Please reach out to me, get in touch and maybe we'll have another story for you next time, Claire. Well, Emer Daly, this has been a glimmer moment. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, one of the first to bring CrossFit to Ireland, my next guest has been at the forefront of fitness trends in Ireland. His company offer a boutique experience. So what is a boutique gym and what else can we expect in the future from this pioneer of fitness? Owen McGregor is co-owner and director of fitness at Perpetua and he joins me in studio now. Owen, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me, Claire. Really excited. So how did you first get into fitness yourself? I presume it started out as something you just did for you before yeah. it became a business. Absolutely. I, I, well, actually what happened was, I suppose traditionally when we were growing up, I was part of GA teams all along and the gym wasn't really a big aspect when we were training for football um, and it wasn't until I moved to Dublin about 15 years ago I started working in Google in the tech industry in sales um, and when I moved up to Dublin I felt as if I wanted to be part of a gym or a community that was something I could be feel part of okay um, and I essentially was just googling around and found this term called CrossFit and it was this new hot term within the fitness industry I went on YouTube, found out that there was this gym called CrossFit Dublin. I Googled, I went on the video. I said, I have to be part of this. I really, really want to be part of it. And for those who don't know what CrossFit yeah. is, can you describe it a little? Well, CrossFit is essentially a strength conditioning program. You'll come in for a class, which is essentially normally 60 minutes. It'll be coach-led, okay? Um, a coach will take you through a warm-up for about 10 or 15 minutes. And traditionally, then you would go through a strength aspect, whether it's something very foundational movement like squatting, deadlifting or pressing. Um, and then after you've normally finished your strength piece, then you'd go into what we would call a WOD, which is workout of the day. It's a common term within CrossFit. Um, and that's where you'll go into a little bit more of a high intensity piece to finish. Um, so it's a 60 minute class, encompasses a lot and people get a lot out of it. But the whole thing is it's a group fitness experience that people want to be part of. So when you went to your first CrossFit class. Oh my God. You loved it. <laughs> loved it. Absolutely. And I was like, I want to be part of it. I have, like when I, when I first seen the video of CrossFit Dublin, what it offered, I was like, I have to be there. Um, I went in and what we do within CrossFit Dublin is we actually get trained like a new job for the first four weeks. So you actually don't go into a class. You got to learn everything correctly first. And that's what we do within CrossFit Dublin. Um, and then after the first four weeks, then I came into the community with the rest of the members and the class itself. And then from there, I started coming to, coming to classes all the time. Then I started entering CrossFit competitions all over Europe, um, which was really exciting for me, something to work towards. And then it went into where I actually became a coach. So it was a nice, uh, I suppose, linear goal for myself to come from a member to a coach and now to the owner. Um, so it's a good, it's good, a good story in some ways, um, but it just shows how much I love being involved in the fitness industry itself. So at what point did you kind of look at your tech job in mm. Google, which was the kind of yeah. golden ticket in golden many ticket, ways? Everyone's yeah. like, this is the way to mm. go. And you thought, do you know what? I'm being pulled elsewhere. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one because obviously, as you said, Google was the place everyone wanted to be work at. Fantastic job, great team, good money, all the way of it. But when I actually got into coaching, the, what you actually feel when you're working with clients is the impact you have for them. And I loved Google as a business, but I really didn't feel as if I was having an impact on an individual. And when you come into a class and see how you change people's lives, the effect it has on them, their health and well-being, I was like, I really, really want to be part of this. So that's when I was coaching in the morning from essentially 6 to 8 a.m. I used to do a little bit of training for 30 minutes. Then you used to go into Google uh, from 9 till 6, do my sales job. And then I used to coach for another two hours after that. So I'd done that for about three years 
built up enough uh, clients and revenue to match my salary from Google. And then that's when I made the step then to go full time uh, into the actual uh, coaching role. Yeah. And realistically, something had to give. You couldn't keep working like that. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think what drove me on was the goal of making the switch. If that was something that I really wanted to do, I was like, I have to work like this for one or two years before I make the change. And you'd be so surprised the amount of people that message me on LinkedIn and Instagram to say they want to move from the tech industry or one of those industries into the fitness and they all want to know how i done it. And I was like, there is no kind of special formula in some way. you got to work a lot before you can make the change to match the revenue. Yeah. And it's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, what are the things you hear time and time again from clients? Are there just common things that people say? In terms of like what they want to actually achieve? Yeah. Or, you know, would you often hear, I don't have time? Or, you know, are there things that you hear time and time again from, I want to lose fat and build muscle. I never have time to exercise. Yeah. What are the things that come up over well, and over again? The term you just said there, build, uh, build muscle and lose fat, is the point. If I had a euro for every time I'd heard that, I'd be a rich man. But I think now the way the trends are changing in the fitness industry, they actually do want to be part of something and it is a lifestyle for them. You can imagine, let's say when we were younger, it was all nightclubs and pubs and stuff like that. But now it's actually being part of a gym, socialising in it and feel part of a community that can have a good effect on their life. So what we're finding now is that clients want to see more events inside the gym. So it's not not just coming in for a class. Does that make sense? Like, you know what I mean? It's more than just a class for them. They want to be part of it. They meet people from the gym and they socialise with people in the gym outside bars and nightclubs. Um, so that's the big thing we're finding now is that they want to have a whole other area and experience outside the class. Okay. And like Gen Z, this is where they want to socialise. Yeah, yeah. Like we're seeing a decrease in alcohol consumption. Mm. And like even see now, like for instance, like, well, there's one aspect, which is gyms, facilities like Perpetua Fitness that has a great community. But then you also seen in the last couple of months, how big are running clubs getting? And why? And it's because they feel part of something. So like they want to be part of it. They feel valued as a person and they feel as if they can share their thoughts or ideas with people within that. Um, so that's the change we're really seeing now. Yeah, I got something pop up on my Instagram. So I'm not even sure where in the world it is or whether it was Irish because it just popped up mm. and it was like run and pastry. So yeah. like run for yeah. your pastry. And yeah. then, you know, showing all people standing around their, mm. in their leggings then having their coffee and their pastry, which yeah. really kind of is different to the health and wellness message we've got that it was yeah. like pound the pavement work off those calories mm. instead it's like meet like-minded people get out have a bit of a run mm. and there's more to it than burning fat and sure. building and you, calories or building would, muscle and you would have seen it even a few years ago would you see a lot of transform, transformation photos on social media and stuff like that one photo from now and then six, well, six weeks later eight weeks later but it's not about that anymore people want a whole fitness lifestyle for every day of the week. Do you get what I mean? So that they can feel as if they are making an impact on their health and wellness. And if you can see, people are obviously describing after COVID that their health and well-being isn't the best or their headspace, but that's what gyms are doing. They're providing that extra element to help them with their headspace and fitness. So what's a boutique gym then? Well, normally when, let's say, when you hear the word boutique, let's say for hotel, you normally think of, think of something quite small, but it is about a premium experience. With Perpetua Fitness, we are a boutique studio um, that offers studio classes, but we're a lot more than that, okay? We definitely offer a premium experience in terms of facilities and what we offer for our clients in terms of our towel service, change rooms, facilities and events that we run. But it's all about providing a premium experience all within the class as well for clients. Um, and that's where we're really trying to bring it in so that if clients are willing to spend the money with us, they're going to be getting a premium experience for what they offer. And that's what, let's say, if you go to a book hotel, that's what you expect. Yeah, because when I think about CrossFit, um, it, it was quite warehousey, wasn't mm. it really? Like people were just meeting up anywhere and everywhere. Mm, um, yeah. And just once you could build it, yeah. they would come. Whereas yeah. you're offering that, but with 
a bit of a fancy experience to feed into that lifestyle piece. And we, what you just described was our old gym, uh, an actual warehouse, and then we had containers, which was our changing rooms. And that's what people at the time accepted. Um, but what we done is we changed this in Ireland about six years ago is we brought in that premium facility in a new building with changing rooms and shower facilities and lockers and towel service and everything around it and a cafe. And that's when we actually, we were normally known as CrossFit Dublin. We still have that affiliate name and that was our, our, our name for years. And then we changed, uh, rebranded to Perpetual Fitness a brand that people feel as if they could relate to. And then that's where we brought in the other studio class, which we have. So we don't just offer CrossFit classes. We also offer studio classes like Tread and Tread, Rumble Boxing, our Ride Studio. So there's a lot more for all different fitness levels. And that's what we done when we brought in Perpetua to Windmill Lane. And now we also have one in uh, Lennox Street. So what are the new trends then, aside from offering more and being more lifestyle and having mm. more social events? Is CrossFit still the number one? I hear of High Rocks a lot more now. Yeah, High Rocks is really building. We affiliated with High Rocks actually last year and it's crazy the amount of people that are actually getting into our classes are so busy now. But I think the reason High Rocks is this new trend in some ways because it's accessible. Okay, and a lot of people also came out of the back of COVID running and running is a big aspect of Hyrox. Okay, so people are uh, entering these events, which is goal orientated for them. They get to travel away to Madrid, for instance, we have a big group going to Madrid in two weeks. Um, and that's that uh, kind of goal that they're working towards. CrossFit's still a big part of our business, but our studio classes are super exciting. It's an energy and experience like no other group fitness class within Ireland, okay? Um, it's about energy, lights, music. You've got a coach that is really bringing a lot of energy to them. And then people are going in there for 40 minutes and getting a really good workout. Yeah, have you got big boxing bags? Have I seen that online? Yeah, so we actually brought in that concept last year and what we call it rumble boxing. So it's not your traditional boxing hit class that you might be used to or you might be seeing in other studios. Ours is all about bringing that traditional boxing back to the clients. So what we do is, I say, for instance, if you think of a famous boxer, Katie Taylor, for instance, if you come into our class today, we're going to make you run on our treadmills, but we're also going to be learning a combination from Katie Taylor that she's famous for. So let's say it's a jab, hook or a jab. That's what you're going to be learning throughout the class. So you're trying to box like a boxer and learn that technique, but you're also getting fit like you run like a boxer. Traditionally, let's say Katie would have been running on the streets of Bray or wherever it is. And that's where we're trying to bring that aspect into our class that people feel as if they're part of a boxing class. How many times a week do you need to be going to the gym for it to make a difference? And I asked this because I filled out something this week and it said, what kind of exercise do you do? Mm. And it had light, moderate, and I can't remember what the next mm. one was, extreme or whatever. Um, and I had to take light and it, like, it really kind of upset me and really yeah. hit me that I was only going one to three times a week and that's considered Light. light, yeah, and for for me, I thought that was pretty good. Mm. But the reality of the situation is obviously different. Well, it all depends on people's lifestyles as well. You know, if you're working long hours or long days or anything like that, you mightn't have the time to fit it in. So even the simple stuff, even if you're not part of a gym like Perpetual Fitness, just getting out walking can may have such a big impact in terms of what your goals are. But then it goes back to one, your goal, and then sorry, what's your lifestyle and how you actually approach that in. But I think it. Um, it's a hard one. It's based on the individual in terms of how what you, how many times you should be training. Our members within Perpetual Fitness come a lot um, because they like being part of the community. Um, but for an individual, let's say, who has a family or a busy work-life balance, then something simple like going for a walk can have a big impact as well on their health and fitness. How many times a week do you train? Uh, most days. But I'm in there every day. Yeah, <laughs> I can see it. It shows. It no, shows. Like, yeah, and like, that's one good thing about Claire, about our, um, about our team as well, right? When you actually come into Perpetual Fitness, we have a team, right, that is literally engulfed in the concepts that we do. They all train it, they live it, they breathe it. It's very different than other gyms. Like, do you know what I mean? That's what we do every day and that's what we want to do. And then that comes across to our members as well. They can see the coaches are 
so ingrained into it that they want to be like the coaches in some ways. Yeah, so that's the pressure. That's <laughs> yeah. the pressure you have to live up to. Well, that's, I think it's just like getting the energy from them. It makes a big difference because when you come to a class, the coach sets the standard in terms of the energy and the type of class. If you've got some coach comes in, it's not really bothered, not really doesn't have the energy. It makes such an impact on everyone. But if you come in and you've got a class with me and I'm like, boom, 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 you're going to feel that, yeah? And you're going to push yourself. All right, well, I'll have to come down and try one out. <laughs> Apps are a big moving trend. You've got that as well. Where can people find you? So on perpetua.ie is where you'd find our bricks and mortar. We're based in Windmill Lane and Lenny. Street, but we also have our online training platform, which is an app which is available on App and Google, sorry, uh, Apple and Google. That's called Perpetua Training. As you can download that, you can either follow our on-demand classes, which you can cast to your TV, but we also have online programs as well. So if you're in the gym by yourself and you want to pop the earphones in, you can also follow the programs that are right. Well, you can hear the motivation that's pumping through Owen's <laughs> yeah, veins. Yeah. Owen McGregor from Perpetua Fitness. Thank you so much for coming Thank on. You, Thank you. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, I'm often hesitant to cover a female health issue. I know as a woman, it's my unconscious bias. So I am always conscious to remain balanced in the topics we cover on the show. But as female health is under-researched, underfunded and underdiagnosed, I feel I have to use this platform to have conversations, raise awareness and change this. I also feel that while there are conditions which will affect women or trans people, we are all impacted. Everyone has a mother, a sister, a girlfriend, a friend, a female colleague who may need support. One such condition is endometriosis. It can take anywhere between 7 and 12 years to get a diagnosis, depending on where you live in the world, and the journey can be arduous. Someone who knows this only too well is Kathleen King, the former chair of the Endometriosis Association of Ireland, an endometriosis advocate as well as a medical scientist. And she joins me on the line now. Kathleen, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Terry. Can you start off by giving us your experience of living with endometriosis? The reason you became so involved in advocacy was based on your own experience. It was. And um, I've been living with symptoms of endometriosis now for um, 35 years. And um, my journey began with my very first period, which began with very, very severe pain and very heavy bleeding. And at the age of 12, you don't necessarily know that you're sort of standing out and that your periods are a wee bit different. But fortunately, um, within the, the sort of couple of years after that, from chatting to peers and, and sort of talking to other people, I realised that something was up. Not everybody was having the same level of pain. And it took a long time for me to get a diagnosis. I self-diagnosed at 14 um, based on information in a home sort of medical textbook that I think we all had back in the sort of, uh, you know, the 90s. And it took a while then to actually convince GPs that I was right, because it, at that stage it was like, well, you're not over 30, you're too young to have endometriosis. Um, so fast forward, I suppose, through, you know, I think nine or 10 doctors, nine years later, um, I managed to get a referral to a consultant in Northern Ireland um, because I would have had to pay for it privately. And the GP who had sent the letter in said, look, you know, I'm happy that there's nothing wrong with this patient, but she's insistent. Um, so, of course, into the consultant, diagnosed straight away with endometriosis, had the laparoscopy to confirm it. And I think what sort of followed on from there was the anger and frustration. I wanted to turn that into something positive. So I joined both the UK and the Irish um, charities at the time 
And the UK charity then had a helpline, which I found, you know, really, really good and helped, you know, on that for a number of years afterwards as well, as well as online. So I think it was a good way to turn this sort of anger into something very positive um, and help other people so they didn't have to wait for as long as a, a delay in diagnosis. And as I said in the introduction, you're former chair of the Endometrius Association of Ireland. Um, you were a member of the World Endometriosis Organisation Steering Committee and you're currently with the Endometriosis Guidelines Review Group. But you, you've moved more into putting out your podcast and, and working online. Is that so you could get more direct? Did you get frustrated with the, the red tape and the lack of, of movement or have we had change? You know, we have had some change, I think, over the, the, the last 25 years. I have seen some sort of slow progression, but I found that we were still not able to reach the individuals at the level that they needed. And, you know, I think sometimes as well, you know, having the flexibility of being able to work on your own and work with different groups um, without a larger interest behind you can bring a bit of power. Um, and in terms of being able to choose, you know, I suppose what um, is relevant and what is relevant to people within the community in Ireland as well. We find that a lot of the information online is very um, US centric and also UK centric as well. So it's very, very difficult in Ireland to get, you know, good, accurate sources of information and to be able to signpost people towards resources as well, because in Ireland it's very, very difficult um, to even get, you know, appropriate treatment. Yeah. So if you go to the individual and they can push for better care um, and better support, that will eventually bring about change as well as the top down. And people will hear from your accent. You're in Donegal. So as you said, you were able to access care in Northern Ireland, but a lot of people are actually going outside of Ireland for treatment. Is that right? They are. And, you know, subsequent to, to my initial surgery here, um, I went on to have eight surgeries in total. My own last surgery was in Atlanta in the US. And I suppose my journey does mirror a lot of people in Ireland at the moment where they are having to travel abroad. And this is down to a number of reasons. Um, one of is there are huge waiting lists in gynaecology, but predominantly it's due to the lack of a wraparound service within Ireland for endometriosis, where we have an excision surgeon who's able to remove the disease in its entirety and work as part of a multidisciplinary team. So a colorectal surgeon, a urologist, a thoracic surgeon if needed, and then services such as you know pelvic physiotherapy, nutritional support, um, you know psychological support, and all of that. We still don't have like a one centre of excellence in Ireland, you know, for the treatment of endometriosis. And that's something that's hugely needed. We have, you know, the potentially, you know, 200,000 women um, in this country living with endometriosis. It's a service that really, really does need to be provided and prioritised. So what do we know about endometriosis? What causes it? What are its symptoms? And, and how do you get a diagnosis? Yeah, so endometriosis is one of those conditions that's, you know, like a lot of things in women's health, it's it's very poorly uh, researched and very poorly funded in terms of research. But what we do know about it is that it's a chronic inflammatory condition and it's also progressive. So where this the, the condition arises where you have endometriotic cells, which are a particular type of cell that end up in the pelvis, end up on the bowel or the bladder or in the different structures within the pelvis. And sometimes could be further up, like in the diaphragm and in the lungs as well. 
And these particular cells, they're hormonally responsive. So when you have your hormonal cycle, the peaks and troughs of that can lead to inflammation and the surrounding tissues to bleed. This then can lead to like inflammation, pain. And again, too, for, you know, people who have end up with infertility, there can be a lot of anatomical distortion as organs are stuck together and it can cause problems that way. The thing is with endometriosis to diagnose it, Visibly on the outside, you know, the patient looks perfectly healthy. They don't look like there's anything wrong with them. So it's going to be very, very tricky to diagnose. Um, GPs are guided towards a presumptive diagnosis at the moment. So they can use a combination of um, the patient's symptoms, how they present. And also, if it's available, very specialised imaging techniques like um, ultrasound or MRI now, unfortunately, they are not always readily available and they will not show all forms of endometriosis. So no patient should be dismissed on the basis of a, a negative report there. But the ultimate way to diagnose then is to use a laparoscopy, which is keyhole surgery. Surgeon will go in and have a look within the pelvic area, look around the diaphragm and check for evidence of the disease. Where the disease is found then, it should be cut out and sent to the lab then for confirmation. And again, there's risks with surgery. And we also know that we have very long wait lists within the country as well, too. So this process actually feeds into that nine year average delay that we have in Ireland. And some of the symptoms that you mentioned there and as well with your personal experience, sometimes that won't be because of endometriosis. It can be something else. So it's this lack of research that, that we're missing a piece there to understand this properly. True. And there are so many drivers of pelvic pain and we have some patients who will not even present with pain. Um, so you can see where for primary care colleagues, this is very, very difficult. You could have a patient maybe presenting with, you know, very severe fatigue at definite parts of their cycle. They may be presenting with um, recurrent migraines or they may have just, you know, irritable bowel type symptoms, you know, at certain points in their cycle as well. They may not have that classical pain that we know a lot of people with endometriosis present. And on the other side of that, we may have patients who don't discover that they have endometriosis until they're at the almost at the very end of their fertility journey. And they've gone through maybe a lot of procedures and a lot of losses there. And then to have the laparoscopy to discover that the disease is there. So it is it's a complex one to diagnose. However, there are a number of red flags. And when we're talking to, to healthcare professionals and to patients, it's always one of the things that we would sort of point out that if the pain or symptoms are enough and severe enough for somebody to miss a really important social event or a family event, you know, like a family wedding or something like that, or, you know, like an exam at school or college, that should be something that's considered if it's serious enough to miss something like that, there's something going on. If the pain's not relieved by over-the-counter painkillers is another sort of flag there as well. And the third one is one that we don't really chat about. We're not comfortable chatting about. And, you know, maybe our healthcare providers aren't comfortable asking, but that's painful sexual intercourse or penetrative sex that causes pain. And that's pain at the time and pain for days afterwards. So they're all ones that we can sort of help to differentiate out some of the other conditions that can sort of go along with endometriosis or have very similar symptoms as well. Because there's a lot of socialisation involved in this, isn't it? That this sort of understanding that periods are supposed to be messy, it's supposed to be painful, it's not something you're very open and talk about, it's something you just grin and bear. But it's not supposed to be painful, it's not supposed to be debilitating. And you're touching on symptoms there, but 
because of the nature of the time we have here, you're, you're not even delving into the ripple effect this has on people's relationships, on their studies, on their career, on their quality of life, on their mental health. This isn't just something that requires a hot water bottle and, and a sit down. This, this is something serious that needs investigation and people need to be believed and listened to. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, almost every person who's been diagnosed with endometriosis will tell you that the first battle they had was being believed. Um, It's assumed that as women, we're strong, we are tough, we're able to put up with anything that life throws at us. But unfortunately, the symptoms that go along with endometriosis can be so debilitating. And as you say, it has a huge knock on effect, not just systemically for the person from head to toe, but it does. It can destroy relationships. It can destroy your work environment. It can destroy your college or educational environment. We have young teens at the moment who are, you know, trying to sit junior and leave insert exams and, you know, really struggling to get their study in. That's going to affect the career choices for the rest of their lives. Um, it truly is a wide reaching disease. If you're going to be known as that friend who always calls off at the last minute because she doesn't know if she's going to be bleeding or lying on the floor, vomiting and passing out in pain, you do become known as that really unreliable person, unfortunately. I put it up on my Instagram for people's experiences or questions. I mean, I'll just touch on some of them because I got so many. This is so common and it's just crazy that it's it's so little is known about it. Experienced horrific periods, says one, since age 12, 13, told to go for walks and do yoga by a GP, put on the pill and given various pain meds over the years, only when I was in my early 30s and pushed back on GPs who said it was normal. Did I finally get sent to a gynae who was the first person to listen and diagnose me after surgery? Women need better care. Another says constantly gaslit. The pain, bleeding, clotting was supposedly part of being a woman. It's mad. Endometriosis finally diagnosed at 42 along with stage one cancer and had to get a hysterectomy. Can we talk about the treatments that are there? You you said surgery, that the endometriosis, that the condition needs to be taken away from the body. But is the pill a treatment? You know, is a hysterectomy a form of treatment? Yeah, so we need to look at the the sort of different presentations of endometriosis for that. So if we think that the patient's main symptom and they're in their teens is that they have, you know, very heavy bleeding, very severe pain and very disruptive um, symptoms during that cycle, often the first line of treatment is something like the pill or a hormonal treatment. But it's important to know that we only are treating symptoms in that case. The pill or no drug that we have at the moment is able to remove the disease. And this is where surgery comes in. Surgery is the only thing that can actually remove the lesions physically and in their entirety. Um, But with that, you still have, you know, often a lot of the systemic symptoms that we don't understand. Sometimes the fatigue doesn't resolve itself after surgery. Sometimes people still register pain or they may have a recurrence of symptoms after surgery as well. And unfortunately, like there's a lot of myths around endometriosis that pregnancy would even be a cure, like, you know, hysterectomy would be a cure. But if we think again about what endometriosis actually is, it's the presence of endometriotic cells. So this particular type of tissue outside of the uterus. So removing the uterus is not going to help a disease that is not linked to it. Um, And I think it was one of those things, you know, certainly in the past when I've seen a lot of young women, you know, losing their uterus and losing their ovaries in their 20s. Um, And now we know better, thankfully. 
we know that removing the reproductive organs is not a cure for this disease. There is no cure for it. There are management techniques and management tools um, like excision and maybe hormonal suppression if it's suitable for that patient. But certainly removing the, the gynae organs is, you know, not uh, an appropriate treatment unless there's another indication um, like, you know, like a cancerous lesion or something else going on for the patient. So what do we do for teenagers experiencing painful periods? Because when you, you think back to you, you know, earlier on in your life or that message we had there, there's another that says my daughter is 16 and a half, very bad period pains now on the pill. How do I know it's not endometriosis? Is there any way that we can help, that we can intervene earlier? Yeah, this is one of the things that we need to be so aware of in this country and it's educating um, our young people as well too for the signs and symptoms of endometriosis and making sure that they're aware of that. And that's something I'm working on at the moment as a a project to go into schools to bring this education there. But for young patients like that, most often they are put on hormonal suppression like the pill and that buys them a little bit of time maybe to get through their school years and get through developmental years before they're offered surgery. In some cases, though, what happens, and this again leads to a longer delay to diagnosis, they may be left on the pill because it's working for them or it's sort of half working and they get enough relief to continue on with their daily life. And this then pushes the the, um, diagnosis and the surgery maybe into their 20s, 30s and sometimes into their 40s as well, where a lot of damage can be done. So, again, the key thing is if you have been put on to hormonal suppression, you know, for, you know, um, severe period pain or for issues like that, it's important to check in, you know, with your doctor and gynecologist to make sure that that treatment is appropriate for you to continue. Um, and if you feel that the symptoms are still quite severe, um, it is well worth, you know, asking then, you know, for a referral to somebody who can actually do surgery and diagnose it if, if appropriate. Well, we'll have to leave it there. It's definitely something that we will revisit. Thank you for all the work you do in this area. If people want to find Kathleen, she's on Instagram at Kathleen underscore M underscore King and you will find her Diarg podcast there as well. And Diarg stands for Delivering Endometriosis and Adamiosis Resources and Guidance. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me, Claire. And thank you to all of you who contacted me with your stories. This is definitely something we will revisit on a future show. But that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and to Hugo De Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.